When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and welcome to a group chat episode of Unscrewed. I have an unprecedented three folks on this conversation because I needed them all to be involved. In case you didn't pick up from the last one, I'm trying to do this season a number of chats based on essays and ideas in my new book, Believe Me, How Trusting Women Can Change the World. So obviously we just had Jessica Valenti talking about the book overall. And then the first one that I wanted to do that I was just dying to dig into is talking about the internet, both the structure of it and the way that it enables the harassment of women who want to engage in all kinds of political and creative speech. And there are three brilliant essays which touch on that subject, and they are by Soraya Shamali, Catherine Cross, and Sadie Doyle, who are all on the line with me right now. Welcome, women. Hello. Thank you, Jacqueline. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you each just introduce yourselves very briefly so that people can understand whose voice belongs to whom? Sure. This is Sadie. And who are you, Sadie? I'm an author. I've written two books. One's called Trainwreck and one is called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers. I'm also a popular Twitter villain. So, you know. You're one of my Twitter heroes, Sadie. (laughs) For you. But thank you. And I'm Catherine Alejandra Cross. I am an academic and social critic currently at the Information School in the University of Washington, where I'm pursuing my PhD. I've written a number of articles about politics and technology and video games, all sorts of fun stuff. I'm not quite as much of a Twitter villain. I'm not cool enough for that. (laughs) This is Soraya Shamali, and I am a writer journalist. I've also written a book called Rage Becomes Her. And I too am a fan of Sadie's Twitter existence. I'm very grateful for it. (laughs) And um, also for Catherine's scholarship, which I have relied on in the past. So I'm really delighted to be here and have this conversation. Hooray. And I'm delighted that you all joined me. And more importantly, that you all wrote for me for Believe Me. Uh, Your essays are all crucial and fantastic. Also, you've all been on the show before, so if folks want to hear more from any individual one of you, they can go back through 
past shows and find your past episodes, you'll hear lots from them. So we're going to have a little experiment of trying to get three people through the lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) What's been making you happy this week? The news that Elizabeth Warren is actually providing childcare so people can caucus. It's really hard to caucus, especially if you have childcare responsibilities. And I thought that her thoughtfulness on that and trying to make sure that disproportionately women who are primary caregivers to small kids could be involved was really great. Yes. And I should say just for a timestamp, we're recording this on the day of the Iowa caucuses. We do not know yet how the Iowa caucuses will go. This is Soraya, and I'm not a big football fan. The Super Bowl was this week. And I was, however, uh, very happy to see the sheer joy and glee of people celebrating Janet Jackson Day. Yes. (laughs) Talk about the internet and its very early days and the uses and abuses of technology. I I just got a big kick out of people pointing out that this was a, a moment in history that was defining in lots of ways. Uh, for the internet. And I just love seeing them support her. Yes. And for me, I think it's the fact that I finished grading my students' quizzes early this week. That's excellent. What is the best sex advice you ever received or some of the best sex advice you ever received? The idea that there is no one sexual ideal that you need to attain no matter what you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you're into, somebody else wants that, somebody else does that. The goal is not to be everything to everyone. The goal is to weed out people until you find the folks who think you're the best and want to do all the things you want to do. You know, I love it every time you say that because it cannot be said enough. For me, it's be open with your partner and tell them what you want instead of what you think is going to make them happy. Yes, also very key. For me, it is that while orgasms can be fun and important, treating them as the be-all, end-all is actually harmful to a good sexual experience. There's plenty of joy in the journey, and that also opened me up to the pleasures of BDSM. So that was probably the most important advice I received, that, you know, the end isn't everything. Yes, Absolutely. I really want to applaud Catherine for referring to it as the journey, which because it makes hooking up sound sort of like Lord of the Rings, which I think <laughs> it always should be. Well, that's very appropriate for me, if you know. <laughs> OK, this is going to be a lot of what we're going to talk about for the whole show. But briefly for now, what's been making you maddest or saddest about the sexual culture lately? How far we have to go for it to even resemble one that is based on pleasure and people's dignity and equality. Yeah. Keeping it similarly high level. The fact that I, after doing this for a decade, really see how often you have to have the 101 conversations over and over and over again. Yeah. Endlessly. It is Sisyphean. It is. Yes. It's also the fact that no matter how often you think you've beaten a certain backlash myth, people seem to always keep them in their back pocket and use them when they're appropriate. And increasingly, I've seen sort of more and more backlash myths specifically around how women report harassment or talk about their trauma on the left. It's been really depressing to me to see people adopt stuff that they know is wrong for political purposes, although I did write an essay on that. (laughs) You did, Sadie. Yes, we'll get into that. All right. What is a sex myth that you used to believe but don't believe anymore? 
Here's one. Um, I always thought that your sexuality sort of remained static through your whole life, that your desire pattern, like it was your job to figure out what it was. And then once you'd figured it out, the same thing would make you happy forever. And now I've sort of come to, in the words of my friend, Catherine Alejandra Cross, embrace the journey. I think that different stuff is going to pop up at different times and you got to stay on that road, throw that ring into that volcano when, when the opportunity presents itself. I'm loving this metaphor so much. (laughs) This is Soraya. I have been fascinated by people's responses when I share with them that until relatively recently and like in the, in the pretty near past, it was believed that women were the people who had uncontrollable sexual urges that would destroy society or that their sexuality was essentially the way a lot of men's sexuality is depicted on the far right in terms of their not being able to control themselves, not being responsible for their actions. Um, And it's just flipped. It's flipped from one gender to the other. And I think people, again, think that that's just natural, quote unquote, and the way that men and women, quote unquote, are naturally. Yep. I remember when I found that out and I was like, what? Yeah, it's interesting. It's like pink and blue, you know? Yeah. Whatever is helpful for keeping the patriarchy stable is what they'll just try and sell. Yeah. For me, I think it's simply the myth that trans women weren't capable of having multiple orgasms. Well, that is a humble brag and <laughs> I will take it. I, <laughs> well, I didn't quite intend it that way. <laughs> It's delightful. Catherine Smith is just like, I thought I was only great at sex, and it turns out I'm really great <laughs> yeah, at exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. That no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I meant. It's delightful. I'm glad that you said it. Oh, dear. Last one is name somebody brave who's working to unscrew the sexual culture in some way that you want to give a shout out to. I'm going to say Chanel Miller only because I've been watching her resilience and I remember when she wrote her letter after the trial in which the man who assaulted her was essentially dismissive of everything that had happened to her. And I thought it was brave then because she said hard things, but the way she said them seemed to capture people's imaginations in a way that all of us doing this work struggle to and often can't. But since then, she's also seemed to have recovered herself or in her attempts to recover herself has done it with grace and generosity. Absolutely. I've been following her and just so admiring of the way that she's just seems to know her own center and maintain it at all times. Yeah. When we talk about unscrewing the sexual culture, it's often not a thing where one person pokes out and says, here's what's up. It's often a matter of movements. And I think specifically the movement for sex work legalization is not something that I had thought I would see in my lifetime. It seemed, you know, even 20 years ago that we were just, you know, centuries away from that. But to see that really big presidential candidates are reversing their stance on FOSTA-SESTA, that there is an increasing understanding of sex workers as workers um, entitled to labor rights, that's been exciting for me. I've been really interested to see how that's going. Yeah, that's been amazing. And I agree. Like, I never expected it to succeed this quickly, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Well, for me, I think about a lot of uh, 
writers like uh, Melissa Gera Grant, uh, she springs to mind. I may well have mentioned her last time, but also to pull uh, Time Magazine here, uh, every sex worker I see on Twitter who advocates fiercely, forcefully, openly, fucks up every meme that and turns it into something that promotes sex workers' rights, uh, who advocates with unapologetic fierceness in a way that exposes not only sex work as labor, but the nature of labor conditions, the way in which the internet is a very different place for sex workers. I think that that has been named collectively and praised collectively. Absolutely. All right, we made it through the lightning round. That was actually, that was great. You did well. Let's start here in terms of jumping into this conversation, which can go in so many different directions. You each wrote an essay for this collection, which comes at this issue from a different place. And I wonder if we could take turns and have you just introduce to folks what your essay takes on. And also, what is the news story or world event or local event that happened before the book was published and after you finished your essay that made you die inside that the essay wasn't out in the world yet? Because <laughs> I feel like that's happened several times for me for each of your essays. So I'd love to hear what it was for you that was like, ah, oh, I wrote about this, but it's not available yet. For me, it's absolutely been some of the really bizarre attacks on Elizabeth Warren. I wrote my essay about the 2016 election and specifically how women were being harassed could subject you to these really strange, intense campaigns to harass you and discredit you and, you know, basically, you know, turn you into a joke or a boogeyman so that people didn't have to listen. There was a very bizarre story that was promoted by a Jacobin writer that she was somehow making up her experience of pregnancy discrimination. Oh, yeah. Because as we all know, women just never got fired for getting pregnant back in the old days. And she had to have been, you know, coming up with a crazy story. There has been... Oh, because the uh, men who fired her didn't write down, we fired her because she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, of course, the fact that she remembered a conversation with Bernie Sanders differently than he did. And specifically, she remembered him saying something kind of sexist. And the wild reaction that that got of her just getting snake emojis tweeted at her and being called the dirtiest campaigner who had ever campaigned. The fact that some friends of mine and to a degree I myself were sort of slammed or smeared or tossed around in the political circus in 2016, often by being called crazy or liars. That was something I had kind of come to terms with. And I don't know whether to be validated or really horrified by the fact that it will happen to any woman who gets in these people's way up to and including the one woman they said they'd never do it to. I'm 100% there with Sadie. I am feeling, I think, maybe more deeply despondent and uh, cynical in that I really expect it so much now. I have no real hope that it won't happen. Once a woman actively seeks power, that's pretty much the end of any positive outcomes in terms of people's responses. My essay was really about hostility towards women on the internet, but really deeply about how systematized it is in the construction of the internet, in the platforms themselves, in the institutions that either support those platforms or participate in those platforms. And just this week after Kobe Bryant died, you know, there was a lot of conversation about how to 
talk about him and his life and his legacy, but also incorporate his sexual assault case and the perspectives of survivors of sexual violence. And the thing that really struck me was that the Washington Post reporter, Felicia Sanmez, who tweeted about that topic simply by tweeting out a, a Daily Beast article about it. She didn't even write it herself. She then became the target of uh, tens, I mean, I, well over 10,000, I understand, threats and tweets and a lot of malevolence. And instead of backing her up, the Washington Post suspended her. And they subsequently reinstated her and apologized. But in fact, just a year before, another reporter, a man, the same thing had happened to him after he was doxxed. And in that case, they supplied him with 72 hours of an armed guard who stood outside of his house. In her case, they suspended her. And they also just suggested if she felt threatened that she go to a hotel. And that kind of double standard when it comes to thinking about women and their words about sexual violence and the meaning of sexual violence and the harms of sexual violence. It was so emblematic to me of the topics in the book, but also the way that power operates online. It's not just bad actors who act as individuals or even part of a mob, but it's also institutions that incorporate similar principles in terms of silencing women. The categorization of what constitutes political speech itself contains that bias, because if it's happening to women in particular, particularly people of color, but especially women of color, what happens to them is not considered political in the same way. It's categorized as a social issue or identity issue. Even the power to define is part of the problem. Meanwhile, in other discourses, our experiences are actually considered hyper-political and in a way mm -hmm. that is seen as diminishing, right? You know, my concerns are valid, but yours are politics, mm -hmm. right? And invariably, that tends to be along various and sundry axes of oppression. And that certainly is a dynamic I've found very exasperating. I'm thinking right now about Joe Rogan. <laughs> mm, why are you thinking about Joe Rogan? Why I, would anyone do that? Uh, I wish I was not <laughs> thinking about Joe Rogan. I have to tell you, before this like eruption a few weeks ago, I thought very little about Joe Rogan. But yeah, the when Bernie Sanders embraced Joe Rogan's endorsement of him and made an ad touting it, and folks said uh, he's racist and misogynist and transphobic and generally hateful asshole. And then we were all told that, like, we were not having a big enough tent. Well, and then Joe Rogan said, eh, you know, actually, maybe it's better if we have Trump. That was yeah. the best part. Yeah, the idea that you triangulate by throwing as many solidly Democratic voters as possible under the bus, because Joe Rogan might let you sit at his cafeteria table and you get that all-important transphobic frat boy vote. But then he's not going to vote for you. I think right. we've seen people make that mistake over and over. And it always is about the idea that certain people's experiences are either hyper-politicized, that you exist less as a person than you do as a debate about your own personhood, or that those people are captive voters, that you are only ever supposed to vote 
for the person who will do the least harm, even if the person who does the least harm is still doing some degree of harm or just plain isn't doing any good. Catherine, this actually reminds me of your essay, which is about how we believe women sometimes when we we sort of perform victimhood, right? When we say, oh, we've been harmed, poor us, like we'll get pats on the head. But that when we speak up and say, actually, we have something important to say that we've learned from our subjective experience, we cannot be believed as experts. Yes, exactly. We are allowed to testify to individual bad things that have happened to us, but we are not allowed to analyze those experiences. We are not allowed to give them wider meaning because then that is what becomes, quote unquote, controversial if it ever gets that far. Otherwise, it's just ignored and hidden away somewhere. There are a lot of consequences to this because that analysis allows us to understand certain controversies in a much more thoroughgoing way. So, for instance, while Elizabeth Warren certainly can take care of herself, but what happened with the whole sexism gate nonsense is a perfect illustration of how these misunderstandings take on lives of their own. So the notion that she would somehow level an allegation of sexism against Bernie Sanders of all people as some kind of last ditch <laughs> political strategy to boost her poll numbers. No one who has done that thinks that it is this route one ticket to glory and success. It is the opposite. It does the exact opposite. It undermines your power and authority. It turns you into a victim, right? And it opens you up to all of these horrible oppositional discourses about what a lying snake you are, etc. Is it impossible that Elizabeth Warren was completely unaware of that and scored a massive own goal through her deviousness. I can't say that, but it just seems extraordinarily unlikely. And people, including those on the left, who seem to seriously believe that somehow a woman in her position would think this is a hilariously good idea that couldn't possibly fail, have not been paying attention or at least selectively ignoring the analysis made by people who say, yeah, you know, talking about this stuff is an enormous risk. And it does, it reframes uh, the allegation itself as an act of aggression, right. don't you find? That there's this talk of, you know, weaponizing trauma, and therefore the idea that people are, I don't know, pulling the victim card or pulling the gender card in order to attack these good-hearted guys who don't mean anything by it, that then turns the person reporting the harassment into an aggressor. And the conversation then becomes, how could you possibly say this? How could you be this disruptive, this divisive? How could you ruin his life like this? You become the problem. And we're all talking about how bad you are for speaking up rather than what the original offense was and what harm that might have done. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Soraya, this conversation reminds me a, a lot of the research that you cite in some of your work about how when I think it's like women in a meeting speak 30% of the time, everyone in that room perceives them to have dominated the meeting. And I yes. like I wonder if like the mere fact of women speaking up and asserting our existence and our right to express our experiences and our expertise is perceived as aggressive just because of that literal subconscious dynamic, that, that implicit bias where we're just so used to hearing men talk and women not talk that when women speak up, it sounds so loud and aggressive or how much you think it's bad faith or any of you can answer this. I think it's really complicated, right? I mean, I think, yes, we expect women to be more quiet. We expect them not to hold people accountable or make demands on the society, but to focus on the needs of others and not to be demanding on their own behalf. We actively reward women for being communal and nurturing, but punish them if they ask for individual recognition or help, right? And they ask from the society. So we, we don't want them to make noise. We don't really want them to make demands. But particularly egregious is making demands of accountability that require the society to specifically hold men accountable. That's particularly difficult, and it flies in the face of very powerful patriarchal norms. But I would say, ultimately, the conversation we haven't really had yet is the degree to which what we think of as patriarchal norms, not holding men accountable in these ways, staying subservient to the needs of the greater society and to men around us, become incorporated in people's identities, particularly in men's identities, so that even men who think of themselves as good men and who have no explicit intent to be sexist benefit from the ways in which the society defaults to patriarchal norms, right? They can speak more openly. They can speak more aggressively. They can hold other men accountable. And that's all considered normal in, in this framework. But for women to do the same thing is really cognitively dissonant. And it's not just about a challenge to a particular man, I don't think, but it is really perceived as a whistleblowing challenge to the entire structure of society because it's such a transgression. Well, that's fucking depressing. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm all joy and light these days. I've been reminded while well, I've been in the last week doing press for Believe Me that you and I, Soraya, especially had a conversation where... I kept asking you in your essay to write about how the world would be different if it was if the internet was actually structurally built for women and for trusting women and centering women. And I remember having this conversation where you were like, I don't know that we can get there. <laughs> and I was like, just pretend, right? Like you just don't have pretend. to you don't have to give us a roadmap about how to get there, but let's let's have a little moment of imagination about what it would be like if imagine that we could. How are all three of you feeling about, like, are you seeing instances where people are breaking this dynamic that we're all describing? Is something succeeding? Is there something that gives you hope? Or are we all just like, fucked? Be honest. 
I mean, I think increasingly there is sort of a, I want to call it a frog in a pot effect, where you will see course corrections from communities only when the amount of misogyny and rape culture within them has risen to the level that it has become intolerable. When we promote these power dynamics, you know, in the field of a competition and you want to win, don't you? What you find is that when you create a system that rewards abusive behavior, the people at the top of your organization wind up being abusers a lot of the time. And when the garbage sort of clears out and the tide goes back, you're able to see the damage that has done. And at that point, there's a call for accountability. But it goes in cycles. You know, for every Me Too, there's a backlash. For every feminist wave, there's a backlash. For every call for accountability, there's another election campaign where another group of abusers gets rewarded, and then you have to do it all over again. It's cyclical. And I think that that's kind of what I've come to accept, is that um, we're all on this podcast to depress you, Jacqueline. And we're going (laughs) to be just, you know, picking up garbage by the side of the road for most of our lives at this point. I definitely agree with Sadie on a lot of this. And what she's talking about is very similar to Susan Felidi's corkscrew vision of the history of gender, where, you know, you're going around the corkscrew up and down. There are these periods of progress and there are these periods of severe backlash. And you're always sort of retreading some of the same ground as you move forward. You know, I look at goodness me, uh, for this uh, Dungeons and Dragons game that I've been participating in. I've been rereading some of my ancient history books. And one of my favorites is Stacey Schiff's biography of Cleopatra, which has an excellent feminist lens. And she notes the immense amount of sexism that was directed against Cleopatra in what was then the popular media of the day, up to and including the speeches of Cicero. All of the same... uh, Orientalist and sexist tropes that we often see today at the intersection of race and gender were employed against her by angry Roman men who were incensed at the amount of power this one woman wielded. And on the one hand, as I always tell people about this sort of thing, it's incredibly enlightening and affirming and also depressing because you go, wow, we've been dealing with this for thousands of years wow, we've been dealing with this for thousands of years. And on the one hand, one can be depressed by that. But on the other hand, I think that there's in a way something ennobling about it because it means that each of us are called to our historical role to fight the fight at this moment in time, at this crossroads of history. And even if our children and grandchildren have to fight some of the same battles with different technology. You are creating the possibility space for people to exist in the future who are just as free or more free, who can build on what you've done or can at least hold the space that you have created and do something wonderful with it 100 years from now, 500 years from now, assuming that we haven't blown ourselves up. (laughs) I mean, including... I think that's the most hopeful perspective that I can give on it. Is that what keeps you going? I would say so, yes. It definitely makes me feel like what I'm doing matters. Because if we were to all just sort of down tools and say, well, there's no point. We've been dealing with this same rubbish in different languages and argots and with different technologies on and off for the last couple of millennia, then, yeah, then it's over. Then it was all for nothing. 
but if you keep going then there will be the hope that it will be for something and you're still creating space for the next wave of people to come along and to continue that because it's not just fighting it's space making creating spaces where people like me for example could exist when i might not have been able to 200 years ago right 150 years ago and there's value in that sort of thing in itself and just as though the folks who made space for you start 200 years ago or cleopatra or whoever we're dating it back to maybe would not have even imagined you and the work that you're doing and your existence. The space that we're creating and making possible also makes possible things that we can't yet imagine and people we can't yet imagine. I also think even in the depths of sometimes just genuinely rageful despair that I feel, um, I do believe that backlash levels up. I do believe that even, you know, the, the way that backlash arguments evolve and are made, it generally requires them to adopt the language and framing and argument of progressive causes. The example I mainly think of is the word climate science, you know, just flat out denial of climate change, but using the word science and the framework of science, they were forced to do that. Same with things like intelligent design or even feminism, you know, people who are claiming that they're feminists in ways that don't jibe with certainly probably the understanding of the three or four of us here, um, but that they have to use that language and that they have to adopt the larger framework of the arguments to do what they're doing. I love that. And also, you know, the backlash to the backlash of 2016 was the 2018 midterms and gets us folks like Ayanna Presley, who is writes powerfully and believe me about the power of having survivors in the actual hall of halls of power. And that, yeah, and that when we claw forward that power in the wake of each backlash, we, we can make progress. She wasn't there before. Right. Yeah. I absolutely agree with Soraya that to some degree, um, the backlash always has to be, you know, a backlash to the backlash to the, um, you know, so if I was 18 years old, girls would say, I'm not a feminist, but, and it was very important to not be seen as a feminist. And now I am, you know, an, an unspecified age. <laughs> Let's assume it's, it's mature, but also youthful and really sexy. <laughs> can confirm yeah uh, I think most of us could Jacqueline it's not subtle but, um, <laughs> it's now you know people who are making really anti-feminist arguments will start with I'm a feminist but like it's yeah. the understanding that you have to be a feminist to be able to participate in discourse is something I couldn't have predicted I do think we are stuck kicking the can as far down the road as we can. And at a certain point, you know, we're all going to hit that limit where we're like, well, I'm done kicking. I'm tired. I have to die now. And there's still more road ahead of me. But I, I think that there's value to that work. The more we clean up, the more we leave behind our traces, as Catherine was talking about with the corkscrew theory of history, the easier it is for the next girl with this problem to say, well, what, what did you do before? What did you figure out back then? What can I use now? We're always building off of each other. And that gives me hope that we are not seeing the absolute unopposed misogyny in this election as we did 
in 2016 where like people didn't even they weren't even confident saying that you know repeatedly denigrating a woman as a liar was an expression of misogyny now we can say well that's just that's kind of a a well-known trope that women are inherently unbelievable that women are always working from some ulterior motive people are forced to play the game of gender politics even if they don't 100 believe in it and even if they wish they could trade it off for some other set of issues we are making Ugh. incremental progress, which I know is everyone's favorite kind. It's the only thing there is. It is it's the <laughs> only progress there is. It really is. Let's wrap up by talking about what's in your survival kit in terms of tactics and I hate the phrase self-care, but like, how are you, before we get there to that future we're trying to make space for, like in the now, in the dystopian now, what's in your survival kit? I have a really concrete example. And it involves me paying more compliments to Catherine because she was actually the person that got me through some of the worst internet harassment of my life. And she did not do it by like giving in to me and letting me be an asshole on Twitter, but she was the person who would text me and say, get off of Twitter, wait in the lobby of your apartment building, don't look at the internet, I'm coming to save you from yourself. I think that what we have is each other. And Catherine was able to do that because she'd been through Gamergate, which was worse. What we have is the ability to not be defined by our experiences or to use our experiences as compelling victim stories, but to use our experiences as sources of expertise and to look for the other girl this is happening to. You are never alone. There is always more than one of you. If you find each other and you give each other what your survival kit was, here's what's worked for me, here's what didn't work. Here's my number. <laughs> you know, text me if you think you're going to yeah. go on a 90 tweet thread on Twitter. If we can keep an eye out for each other and listen to each other's experiences when this happened, then we can keep each other alive through the worst of it. Oh, that's um, immensely kind of you. Thank you. It was more than my pleasure. And yes, I, I agree with a lot of that, you know, all of it, really. I do believe that that is ultimately the political purpose of this kind of expertise. What is this all for? It's not just for individuals to look really smart in public. It's that this knowledge is about how to change the world for the better at both the micrological level and at the level of street protests and legislation and revolutionary change. When I think about my toolkit, I think talk to your loved ones openly and honestly to the people who don't or won't judge you for having a low moment and to slew us off the most unproductive of your rage until what's left is something that you can fashion into a potent weapon. That's how I try to engage with the world. I think that the last several years have taught me quite a lot about social media and not just because I study it as an academic, but I have actually learned a great deal about the limitations of social media, what it is and is not for, how many people, well-meaning people, misuse it, not just in hostile ways, but in ways that end up hurting themselves. And that has given me some insight into how best to manage things. There's a reason that I don't comment on every single political issue on Twitter. I used to be that way. And that was eating me up inside. The fact is, is that Twitter and other forms of social media are very important for spreading awareness, for creating and maintaining community. But I have learned the hard way that 
the rest of the world matters a great deal and the conversations that I've had offline. And I say this as a technophile, but the conversations that I've had offline have been more open, more enriching, more nuanced, and the constant roaring jet engine of screaming existential rage that is Twitter in bumper sticker form is not always representative of who we are or where we are. And I take enormous comfort in that notion as well. And that guides how I interact with the world. This is Soraya. I met all of you through the internet and through doing this work. And I've been really so grateful. It's such a positive aspect of this technology. And I want to say ditto to everything that Sadie and Catherine have said. But I think that when I speak to people that are maybe new to some of this work, I believe, which is something I had done early on, that it's easy to underestimate the toll it can take. And one lesson that I learned that was really important was to think of this work, which we're all very invested in, with joy and compassion, and also as this massive community. Because in fact, all over the world, there are people working in the same direction. And I have come to try and describe it as a baton passing exercise. You know, you do what you can, when you can, to the best of your ability. And when it's time to step back and rest, um, focus on other aspects of life or just catch your breath, there are always people to pass that baton to. And they are competent and they're driven and they have the same kinds of interests and objectives. And not feeling a sort of sense that, oh, my God, I have to do it all all the time is a lot healthier, even though sometimes I think this work can be consuming in that way. Amen. All right. Wow, that was a more encouraging and optimistic conversation than I expected to have y'all. So well, well, that's good. Well done. Mm -hmm. Where can everyone follow you? Is there something you want to plug? I write freelance mainly. And I always share what I'm working on in Twitter at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. Um, I always also share it uh, in Instagram and Facebook with probably a little less uh, regularity, though. Um, and I also have a website, which is my name, sarayashamali.com. I'm Sadie Doyle on Twitter, and it's S-A-D-Y-D-O-Y-L-E, because my name is spelled slightly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I write for Medium and Dame Magazine, so you can you can find me there. And I have the least friendly Twitter name of all of us, I think. I am <laughs> at Quine Moon. So that is Q-U-I-N-N-A-E underscore moon, like the celestial body. And you can also find my work all over the internet in various forms. And if you like it and you like my Twitter threads and such, you might feel inclined to support me on Patreon as well. There's a link on my Twitter page. Excellent. And you are all excellent Twitter follows. I'm, I may heartily recommend you all. Um, and you outshine me constantly on Twitter. I'm very erratic. 
But you can follow me on Twitter at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Effable, and my website is JacquelineFriedman.com, where you can find the list of all the upcoming Believe Me tour dates. The DC one will feature Soraya. We're working on a Seattle one that may feature Catherine. And also, Sadie doesn't know it yet, but I'm working on an upstate New York one that I'm going to (laughs) recruit her into. so you should soon hopefully sometime in the spring have an opportunity to see all of us live in person talking some more about all this stuff you can also support my patreon you can find a link to that on twitter as well if you want to help pay for you know airport lunch while i'm traveling around uh that is always super much appreciated and obviously, Believe Me is available wherever fine books are sold. And if you've read it, here is my shameless plea to review it on Amazon or Goodreads. You don't have to have bought it on Amazon to review it on Amazon, but reviewing it in either place helps other people find the book and sort of bumps us up in the search ratings. So if you've read Believe Me, if you love Believe Me, let other people know somehow, some way. Unscrewed is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by Natalia Rodriguez. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole Dadana. Until next week, I am wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.